the Spark Parent Podcast. The Spark Program is here to help parents and caregivers not just survive remote and hybrid learning, but to thrive during it by providing free support and resources tailored specifically to what families need. Spark is part of the Learning Technology Center of Illinois. The LTC is an Illinois State Board of Education program that supports all public K-12 districts, schools, and educators through technology initiatives, services, and professional learning opportunities. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Spark Parent Podcast. Uh, Up until now, a majority of our episodes have focused on the older school-age children, so today we are dedicating an entire episode to our littlest learners. Uh, Today we're focusing on toddlers and preschoolers with our guest, early childhood education expert and advocate, Susie Allison, also known as the creator behind the immensely popular Busy Toddler Instagram account. Uh, Susie also recently published her book, Busy Toddler's Guide to Actual Parenting, From Their First Snow to Their First Day of School and Everything in Between, which, if you are like me, will quickly become one of your favorite books on parenting. So welcome, Susie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how Busy Toddler came about, and what parents and caregivers can expect to find when they come and find you on the internet under Busy Toddler? (laughs) Totally. So I was a kindergarten and a first grade teacher, and I absolutely loved it. It was magical. It was wondrous. It was everything it was made out to be. Mm -hmm. And then I had my firstborn, and I left to stay home with him. And about a year after I had him, I was blessed with another, which was a little bit crazy. And I ended up with two kids under two and I was drowning. I was absolutely drowning in parenthood. And I just felt like I needed a lifeline. I needed something out there, something to pull me out from under. And what I ended up realizing could help my days was setting up really easy activities with my son. And I was modifying things that I'd done in kindergarten, things I'd done in first grade. And I was modifying them down to a a little toddler level. Mm -hmm. I was having a ball doing it. And so one morning in June, I woke up and I thought, "I, I wonder if other people would enjoy these activities too. Yeah. And I searched around on Instagram and I found the name busy toddler wasn't taken. And I put up my first post and within a month, the ball had started rolling in a way that I will never be able to understand. (laughs) And now here we are, what are we, five and a half years later, and I have a million followers. And it is still weird to say that number out (laughs) loud, because I don't think it will ever make sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) So are these activities just for toddlers? Are they good for older kids as well? No, they're great for older kids as well. My tiny toddler, who is the original busy toddler, is now a first grader. So he's not much of a busy toddler anymore. So what that means is my Instagram account, my website, they span this age range from baby, because then I started doing activities with my baby and then my Mm -hmm. third baby, all the way up to now I've got a first grader involved and he's pulling out supplies and he's doing things. And I think one of the magical parts of activities is that they really do span multiple ages. I think we get really stuck into ages with kids and wanting to find something that's hyper-focused into a certain age when really a few tweaks or a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you can make just about anything work for an incredible multi-age of kids. So that's essentially what's happened with Busy Toddler now is it's just really busy toddler, busy kids, preschoolers, babies, babies. It's a little bit everybody. (laughs) Busy everybody stuck home in a pandemic. 
So we're going to focus a little bit on like the preschoolers or even the toddlers. I think a lot of parents uh, like myself opted to keep kids home from school this year that would have been entering preschool, maybe like a three-year-old preschool or four-year-old preschool where not like a hundred percent necessary that they're in school every day. Um, it's more, you know, to help with socialization and things like that. But are we doing them a disservice by keeping them back this year? Like, is it crucial for them to be in school right now? I think when we're specifically talking about toddlers and preschoolers, what we have to look back is previous generations. And I think what we have to remind ourselves is that preschool is a relatively new concept into public education. And what's even newer is this idea that kids would need multiple years of preschool. Mm -hmm. And then what's even more on top of that is this idea that it needs to be an academically rigorous preschool. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are kids who need early intervention, who are marginalized, who need it for other reasons than just socializing or it's on trend and it's something to do. And those children, obviously, it's devastating that they're not receiving those services. But for the majority of kids, when we look at preschool, I think what we have to look at and remember is that this isn't something that is necessary and it wasn't necessary 50 years ago. 50 years ago, our parents and grandparents weren't sent to preschool. They were schooled at home until the day that they started kindergarten. And those generations turned out great. Yeah. (laughs) They did. They they turned out really well. That's a really good way to look at it. And this wasn't something that parents were hyper-focused on finding a competitive preschool in the 50s wasn't really what it is today. Right. So if we can go back a little bit like that and really look at those past generations and say, you know what, for the majority of typically developing children, it is okay if they have not gone to preschool outside the home. What's most important is that they have that loving, stable, caring home, invested parents who are thinking and trying. And I always say, if you're following me on Instagram or you're listening to an education <laughs> podcast, you are an involved parent. You, you are trying. <laughs> you are trying. And that, that really is what matters here. That really is what matters. So you mentioned um, in that last response talking about like getting ready for kindergarten, like before they just hopped into kindergarten, no preschool. Right. Um, now a big buzzword is kindergarten readiness. And can you explain what that is? And if that's something that um, parents need to be worried about or just aware of, or even how do we just know if our kids are falling behind and need that little extra before kindergarten? Before kindergarten. So again, looking back in time, mm-hmm. kindergarten readiness didn't exist. Parents raised their children and they loved on their children through those early childhood years. And then they hit five years old and they opened the doors to kindergarten and they said, bless your soul. Good luck. (laughs) And they pushed them off. I know I went to kindergarten, um, not knowing my letters. I didn't know how to count. My mom said, you were a nice person. So good luck and (laughs) sent me out the door. And to me, that is what kindergarten readiness should be. And I'll kind of circle back to to what it should be, but what it's become is this idea that if we don't hyper-focus and drill into kids a number of skills in these early years that then the child won't be successful in kindergarten. And I think the unsuccess or children not being successful is the greatest fear of every parent. And so what's ended up happening is we have technology companies and we have toy companies and we have marketing firms that have really targeted on this fear, this fear Mm -hmm. that your child isn't going to be ready, this fear that you have failed as a parent. And that fear is so unfounded. It's so unfounded because what they're pushing is a kindergarten readiness that means the child should be academically ready for kindergarten. 
when that really isn't what the child needs and that really isn't going to be a measure of how successful the child is in school. Oftentimes when we hear kindergarten readiness, we're hearing it from the lens of, do they know their letters? Do they know their numbers? Can they yeah. count? How high can they count? Do they know shapes? Do they know colors? Right. Like that's what people, yeah. Yeah. And that's what people talk about. They almost look like a checklist for kids. Like, have they checked this, 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 right. this, and then, oh, well you've mastered this 10 page checklist. So now you're ready to go to kindergarten. And that's just not what is going to set a child up to be successful in kindergarten. And that's where things have really failed for parents is this explanation that kindergarten readiness needs to be academic. Mm-hmm. And really it doesn't because that's looking only at kindergarten. But what we need to look at is the full breadth of this child and that this child is going to someday go into fifth grade and into middle school and into high school and into college, maybe into a vocational career and off into life on their own. And there are skills in early childhood that they need to be learning that are often being skipped in favor of these really simple, basic academics. And those are the skills that our parents valued in us. When my mom sent me to kindergarten and said, well, you're a nice person, have fun. What she meant by that was you have nice skills. You've learned to share, you've learned to communicate, you have empathy, you can reason, you can ask questions, you're curious, you imagine things, you problem solve, critical thinking. Those become the skills that kids need when they enter into kindergarten. And I often say to parents, remember that when your child goes into kindergarten, what they're doing is they're having this moment where they're leaving you and being independent and knowing the letters of the alphabet is not going to help your child to stand confidently in a room full of strangers Mm -hmm. and to learn. It's simply not. But what will is the confidence that you've instilled in them, the communication skills you've instilled, the problem solving, the critical thinking, those skills that's what's going to end up driving your child into successful years in kindergarten and beyond. And it really is that and beyond that right. we so often forget. A lot of times I think those are referred to as like the soft skills. That's what yes. parents might've heard of before where it's the skills that help them do other things. Like you can't really teach grit and, you know, perseverance, but grit and perseverance help them keep going when they don't tie their shoe right the first time or the 12th time or the 30th time. <laughs> And I think what we have to remember as parents is that in our adult world and in our adult lives, we value the soft skills. That's what we value the most in a person, in a friend, in an employee, in a boss, in a work environment. We value the soft skills. When you go sit down in an interview, they don't ask you what age you learned the alphabet or how (laughs) old were you when you started counting? They ask, how do you work in a team and what do you do if a problem arises? And they're asking you about those soft skills. We value our friends based on the soft skills they have. And again, we don't ask our friends what their reading level is. <laughs> we ask <laughs> that they be a nice person. Right. doesn't matter if you can read as long as you're a good but person. But I always just find it so fascinating that we value these very heavily wrote memorization academic skills in early childhood. And we build them up as though they are the end all be all. But then as the child ages, we start saying things like, well, but I want them to communicate more and I wish they had more empathy for other people. And I wish, and the truth is we should have taught those skills first. First. We should have taught those first. So what are some activities that you love to do with your kids that can support some of those skills, but also start supporting things like number recognition or letter recognition, or even some of the STEM is a really big buzzword, but at this level, it's more like trial and error. Like it's trial and error. How do we, uh, what are some skills we can do at home or activities we can do at home, I should say, that can start supporting some of these skills? 
Well, I think the first thing to remember is that our job at home is exposure and experiences. What can we expose them to? What experiences can we give them? And if you think back to when your child was learning animal names and sounds, Mm -hmm. You didn't harp in on that. That's never a skill that we are like hyper-focused on and like trying to drill into our kids. We just know that naturally they somehow start learning. That's a cow and it says moo. That's a chicken. It says cluck. And they just naturally kind of figure this out. And if we can apply that same logic to something like letter names and sounds, which is the same as cow says moo, M says mm, mm, it's all the same. But again, we've built these letters up on pedestals and things like that. But if you can look at all of those academic skills, the counting and the letters and shapes and things like that, and if you can look back to when you taught your child animal names and sounds and you let it build in context and you just expose them, you had books in your house with animal names. Anytime you saw an animal, you pointed to it. Anytime you were driving in the car, you were singing songs and talking about it and it develops naturally. So I think if we can really focus on developing these skills naturally in our kids and just letting their natural learning self take over, and then as they do build those skills and as it does solidify and as it does form, then we can start doing some really fun activities where we can you know, use post-it notes and be running around the house trying to find the post-it notes or we've got a flashlight and we're going from room to room looking for letters. But the truth is we need to wait until the child is ready for that. And developmentally, that's going to be in a really broad spectrum, depending on the child. Some kids might be ready for that around age two, some not until four or five. And I think a lot of parenthood becomes with our activities is knowing what's best for your child. Yeah. Can you give um, maybe a specific example of like your flashlight letter activity or a post-it note activity to give parents a kind of general idea of what you mean where... Um, they're learning and recognizing it similar to like the, the farm animal noises. Cause I also know you're very big on, you don't need to learn the alphabet A to Z in that like almost chronological order. Yeah. Um, it's all about learning a bit more organically. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like concretely? So when I'm thinking about an activity for my kids and when I'm starting to learn that, walk them down this road of letter recognition and things like that, remember that the first word your child is probably going to learn and the first letters is their name. So focus in on that. Look at the letters of their name and kind of focus in on that and say, hey, these are letters that you're going to see a lot and we're going to play with these letters. Write those letters on post-it notes and hide them around the house. Hide a lot of them. Hide four or five per letter in their name around the house. Put their name on a big piece of paper somewhere in the middle of your house and have them come back and collect those letters and try to put them back in order. While that is a letter recognition activity and while it is very focused on learning the alphabet, at the same time, it's also just a matching activity where they're matching a symbol to another symbol and it becomes very, very, very hands-on and appropriate and easy for the child to just kind of glom onto this, oh, this Mm -hmm. shape is in my name. This squiggle is in my name. And then eventually they'll realize that squiggle, that was an M. And that one, that's an A. And they don't even need to necessarily know that it's an A yet Mm -hmm. to recognize this is part of my name. This is this shape. This is this symbol. And I can match those symbols together. So matching patterns, things like that. Yes. So with these activities, I know if they go through your book, which my son now calls the activity book because he flips <laughs> oh, through <laughs> like a toy I love catalog. that. 
finding things that he wants to do. Um, a lot of these activities, um, even ones with letters and numbers center around sensory bins, which I had yes. never heard of until I started following you on Instagram, but now I'm starting to see pop up on lots of other, um, parenting accounts. Can you talk a little bit about what a sensory bin is and just why ev- toddlers just seem to be drawn to them. Moth to a flame, moth to a flame. So a sensory bin is just like a bin full of mess that you're going (laughs) to set in front of a child who likes to make more messes. I don't know what could go wrong and I don't know why anybody would be concerned (laughs) about this. It's so straightforward. Explain it that way. I don't understand why they're so popular. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Who is letting their kids do this? How did I build an entire Instagram on this concept? So what a sensory bin is, is you're thinking about a large bin. I use an under the bed storage container and you're putting in some sort of a non-toxic, kid-friendly, they aren't going to choke on it material. My favorite is dry rice and I'm always going to go back to dry rice. And you put it into the sensory bin and you're thinking like three or four pounds and you can save this for years. Trust me. I have one bag of rice that should be entering preschool by this point. (laughs) You just seal it up. And you pour it into this bin and you can let your child have this magical tactile experience where they're learning and they're feeling with their hands. Mm -hmm. And what that sensory bin can allow a child to do is that child can learn about math because they're going to use scoops and they're going to figure out capacity without us ever saying the word capacity or the word volume. They're going to start to figure it out. They're going to learn about life skills. How else does a child learn to scoop and pour something? They need the chance to scoop and pour if we ever want them to be able to pour their own cereal in the morning. And that is the dream. And that That is is the parenting goal. That is the dream. (laughs) This is why we do sensory bins. It will help you to do breakfast someday. (laughs) But sensory bins, they end up opening up this world of imaginary play and dramatic play and communication and problem solving and critical thinking because the child just decides what they're going to do with Mm -hmm. these scoops and these cups. And while as adults, we look at this and we go, great, that, I mean, (laughs) go for it. It makes sense to a child. And I always tell parents, if you're questioning a sensory bin, I understand that it's not wired for our brains aren't wired for it. Right. Put a small one in front of your child and see what happens. And the second you see that magic be unlocked because kids just know they are so smart and they just know what to do. Mm -hmm. And the second that you unlock that, you will see the magic of a sensory bin. And I know that they can get messy and, and I know that they look terrifying. Yeah. But the other part of sensory bins that I love so much is that this is our chance to teach our kids about Mm self-control. And if we loop back to kindergarten readiness, there was a study done years ago and they started looking at what skills does a child have in kindergarten and what skill can we pinpoint a skill that will determine how successful that child is in their schooling and their later life. And these researchers came back to it's self-control. How much self-control a child has in kindergarten ends up becoming a key indicator in their future academic success and their life success. And we can teach our children about self-control with a sensory bin Mm -hmm. because they can't throw the rice and they can't eat the rice and they can't dump the rice and they have to learn that impulse and that self-control. And it will take time. It's going to take you teaching them through these firm, clear, and consistent boundaries. This is not acceptable. No dumping, no throwing, no eating. 
And you're going to keep repeating that and you're going to keep working with them. And you are going to watch them sometimes when you start with a sensory bin, you're going to stay really close to your child because do not walk away from a sensory bin with a first time user. They will dump it. It will be a disaster. (laughs) It's going to be a mess. Set yourself up for success. Stay really, really close. And you will watch them. And I remember watching my daughter around 18 months old, picking up a thing of rice and just her hands shaking. Like she has to throw this or this is the end of it. And I kept working with her and eventually, nope, the impulse control got her. She started you know, decorating the room like we were at a wedding in 1986. <laughs> and she's just throwing. And I said, we're done. And I calmly picked up the bin and I put it away. And I said, we will try again later for greater success. And we did. We tried again later. And every day she got better and better with her self-control and learning that skill, learning about self-control through a bin of rice. And by the time she was two and a half, she was someone who could sit with a bin while I cooked dinner. She was magically entertained and I'm able to cook dinner without someone wrapped around my leg. Right. And that's the magic of sensory bin. She's learning math. She's learning science. She's learning reasoning, problem solving, communication. She's learning self-control. And that again, self-control is going to be this big indicator of the success a child has later in life. And here she's learning it in a bin of rice and how cool is that? I think it's also great as sort of like parent training wheels. It's a very low risk way to start practicing on the boundaries. I, I so agree with that. I think that, that we often with parenting, we wrap stuff up and we think, well, it has to always be a giant lesson all the time. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't. If we can start small with really small little lessons, then when we get into hairy, scary parenting situations where we do just need the child to listen and we do just need the child to stay within this boundary because we are in a very, very important situation, I think that they have those skills, the parent has the skills and the child believes in the parent's skill. They've seen it through this sensory bin. They've seen my parent lays out firm boundaries. My parent is serious. They give my, the boundaries consistently. They're not wishy-washy when they say something it's clear. They clearly explain the boundaries. So I can start to listen to my parents when they're explaining the boundary of our front yard and the boundary of a parking lot and the boundary of expectations later in life when you're out with a friend group. And it comes back to a sensory bin with those firm, clear, and consistent boundaries and what we teach our kids in these early years. It's really very magical, that sensory bin. (laughs) It really is. And it's all for a, what, a $5 bin at Target and $3 in rice that will last you years. Yeah. Years. (laughs) And I will put a bunch of stuff in our show notes. I'm taking notes as we talk today too. Um, you have a great shopping list on your blog of things you can put in a sensory bin. Yes. Um, just some ideas of what fillers, what, you know, toys, add-ins, pom-poms are a big one that I never would yes. have thought to put in there. Um, they're fun, huh? And like so scoops, cool. I get a lot of stuff from the dollar store. I just yeah. go on like a dollar store. You can do a lot of damage with $10. Yeah. You really set can. Up some really amazing activities. It doesn't need to be expensive or fancy or anything like that. So I'm going to go back to the mess um, topic you mentioned earlier, because so many kids activities, I think parents get turned off by them, especially now that we're in our homes for the most part, a lot more than normal. Mm -hmm. Um, when they see an activity, they just see mess and they are turned off by it. So how do you handle it in your home? Is it okay to just let mess happen? Um, and on the flip side, do you have any tips for getting kids to clean up? Because those would be also greatly appreciated. Right. <laughs> so what I always say to my kids is we do not make a mess for the sake of making a mess. 
there it has to be purposeful and there has to be boundaries and there has to be some sort of exit strategy for me to get myself out of this mess right <laughs> once we started it but really we never make a mess for the sake of making a mess there is always purpose and i always encourage parents look past the mess and see the learning because the learning is there Right. It might be in the way that your child has put the paint all over their hands and disgusting and not something we would do, <laughs> but they're having a tactile experience and they really are learning about that. And the other part is find your boundaries, mm-hmm. find your boundaries, because I think so often in parenting, we look at what other people are doing online and we say, well, in order to be a great parent, I have to do that too. So I guess we'll do that too. And that's how you end up in an uncomfortable situation where paint is on your walls and paint is on your carpet and you <laughs> don't know what else, you don't know what to do and, yeah. and we're mad at the activity. <laughs> but really, we need to find our boundary and we need to step ourselves into this and we need to set ourselves up for success. Find the space in your house that is safe to do an activity. Maybe it's your bathtub, always. Yeah. Maybe it's your patio. Maybe it's the floor of your kitchen. I always encourage you to be near a water source because that is very helpful. My kids always have a wet washcloth next to them. And that started when my son was two. He didn't like touching sensory materials that were messy. He did, but he didn't, but he did, but he didn't. So we came up with a system that he could have a washcloth next to him. And then he had ownership of cleaning up. And this has translated over the last five years into when they paint, they have a washcloth next to them because they're able to start wiping up those spills and those drips or be very aware of, I've spilled paint on the floor, mom, I need you to come over and get this. Mm -hmm. And it, again, it all goes back to this idea of firm, clear, and consistent boundaries. And if we set up the boundary, you're going to paint this, you're not painting anything else. If I see you painting something else, the activity is over. And the activity might be over a couple of times and you might have to take the activity away and say, we're done. It's over. But you have done so much good for your child in that Mm -hmm. moment because you have shown them that we have boundaries. We have rules in this house. And when you cross those rules, this is the consequence, this is the natural consequence. So set yourself up for success. Find a spot in your house where you can do this. Stay within your boundaries and within your comfort zone. I always joke a lot on Instagram that I love messy play. I love sensory bins. Do not bring Play-Doh into my house. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. But that's my boundary and, and yeah. I don't like it. And so guess what? I don't bring Play-Doh into my house because I can't with the little pieces of it everywhere. Yeah. And it's always mm-hmm. on someone's shoe and it gets, mm-hmm. I can't, it doesn't work for me. It works for a lot of people. It doesn't yeah. work for me. And you know what? I'm okay in my parenting. When I see <laughs> other kids doing a Play-Doh activity online. And I look and I say, wow, that's fantastic. I love that she has a system where she can do that. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't work for me. And I move on and I move on to an activity that I know I can do that. I know I can be successful at that. We can clean up with a washcloth Mm -hmm. that we can have the water source and that I can in some way improve my parenting and my children's lives through an activity. Can we talk about a different mess though? Like the one you got going in your backyard and how playing like in your, in a messy backyard with maybe a bucket of sticks. Yeah, I know it's magic. In this sort of toy economy where, you know, there's kids on YouTube getting millions of dollars for all of the toys. Um, sort of the value of some dirt in a bucket of sticks. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I, again, let's go back to the fifties and what were kids <laughs> playing with? They were playing with dirt, stick and hoop. I mean, yeah. ball, a shovel. Yeah. I think when we can give our kids a little bit in the backyard or at a park or somewhere in nature with a bucket and a shovel, 
I think the amount of good you're going to do there is, is so much more than any toy you could ever buy for your child. Yes. We were just, my daughter and I were just reading a book the other day and it was set long ago. It was set like in the fifties and the parent referred to all the child's toys as rainy day toys <laughs> and, and, and said, you play outside yeah. if it's sunny out or if it's, you know, and the only time you're ever inside with toys is on a rainy day. And I thought that was so fascinating because here we are in this culture where kids are playing with toys all the time, no matter what they're inside, they're outside, they're in the yeah. car, they're at grandma's, they're always playing with a toy. But this concept that outside should just be this free range nature, you know, you're running up and down, you've got a rope, you've got a stick, that's it. And then inside being this place where you play with toys. And I just thought that was so fascinating. <clears throat> My kids in our house literally have a dirt pile in the backyard and <laughs> it is the most ridiculous looking thing you've ever right. seen. And it really is just a pile of dirt. It's some shovels, some rakes, some scoops. There's a couple of hard hats and some pipes, old pipes that we just, you know, had around the house. And the kids have used that system for over four years now that this has been this ongoing muddy play, messy yeah. play system. And you know what? I figured out when they are ready to come in, they strip it down head to toe. Right. Then they're allowed back in my house. <laughs> what an amazing experience for these kids to have, to have this really safe place where they can just be in nature, mm -hmm. do what they want to do, create, be a little bit ambitious. You know, they really believe they're going to like solve something with this Find tube system. And <laughs> yes. Something is going on. And again, it's been going on for four years. So the jury's <laughs> out on what they're going to accomplish at the end of this. And I don't know when it ends, but it's been fantastic to watch it. And so it's just that really this concept of open-ended play, let the children drive it though. I can't see the magic in it. And though I can't see the learn the, I can't see the possibilities they yeah. can. And I, and I do, I have to look past the mess and I have to see the learning because what they're learning is fantastic. So a lot of the activities that you have mentioned or are on your Instagram are also in your playing preschool curriculum. So if a parent is looking for like, like I know I right now, I need a to-do list. I need somebody to do the thinking for me. Is your playing preschool curriculum kind of geared towards that where it gives parents sort of a set of activities where they could be doing this to sort of help maybe spark some of this in their kids? Yeah. So I wrote playing preschool um, a lot of years ago now. I'm getting really old at this. <laughs> I wrote playing preschool back in 2017 when I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old and not a nickel to spare for preschool. Preschool mm -hmm. is very, very expensive, particularly in the area I live. And when I started doing the math, Mm -hmm. of multiple years of preschool times the three kids that I have, it was going to come out to $35,000 for a three day, half day program. This isn't even like creme de la creme. We're talking a right. very basic preschool program in the area I live in. $35,000. I didn't, right. I don't have that. I can't spend that on a lot of parents, especially now are in that same. Right. Boat. And so I wanted to show parents that you can First, I wanted to show parents that you are the best teacher for your child. And that harkens back again, 50, 70 years ago to where parents knew in these early years, they're the best 
they're the best teacher for their child. And that's what we are even today. We are the best teacher for our child. You have the tools to do this at home. What we're looking for when we're looking for learning at home and learning in preschool in general is exposure and experiences. And I wanted to find a way that I could let parents have those exposures and experiences with their kids in a way that isn't trying to just push in a bunch of academics and see how many memorized skills we can have a child learning. Right. But instead to have this breadth of skills that as a former kindergarten teacher, I know are the most important for a child going in to kindergarten. And they're these kind of higher level skills like sorting and recalling and retelling and sequencing events and understanding the value of numbers, not just counting, but the actual value of it. And really different skills than what we're seeing pushed on the internet these days. So I started writing a curriculum based on what I'd been doing with my kids and what I had, what had worked for me in the past Mm -hmm. with them. And I came up with playing preschool and playing preschool is 190 days. It's an at-home program. Each day is scripted out for you with an opening, an introduction, something to talk to your child about, a sample book to read. I, I say that because it's, it's a suggestion right now. It's really hard to get to the libraries. And so people are getting real, you know, doing the best they can to find books to read to their children. But really it's just a themed book. You're going to read to child of any book you can about apples. Mm -hmm. And then here's two activities for your child to do. And the program, what's different about it than other preschool programs online is that it follows a really clear scope and sequence, meaning the lessons they do in unit one are a lot easier than what they're going to do in unit 19. It's going to slowly build. It's a Mm -hmm. spiraling program. So it isn't based off of mastery. You're not going to sit on a lesson with your child and keep explaining it to them, explaining it until they master it. You're just going to do it and you're going to move on to the next one. And you're building those exposures and the experiences. And I picked really interesting topics that, so kids can just kind of get this breath of exposures and experiences, but all at home and all in 45 minutes to an hour and using the supplies they have around the house and in a really inexpensive way that fit more with what I could afford for preschool for my children and what I knew was enough preschool mm-hmm. for any child who's going to end up going into, you know, public kindergarten. What I love about it is so much of it can get, be bought at the dollar store. It's like post-it notes, decks of cards, dot stickers, yeah. like it's Measuring nothing cups. earth shattering that you need no. to go out and spend. Even some of the online curriculums that I've looked at for um, my son, it was, you know, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. In hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Some of the programs, even just to buy the program is hundreds of dollars. And then you start looking at the supplies. I know one of the programs I looked at this fall, it was a minimum $200 you had to buy in books minimum. Yeah. Whereas I made my program, they're they're book suggestions, find what you can do the best you can use YouTube, watch the read aloud on YouTube. (laughs) It works. It's not ideal, but you know, we're in a pandemic. Nothing is. Yeah. And, and I wanted something that wasn't going to break the bank, that was going to give children exactly what they need in a preschool, but without it being a stress on the parents financially 
or overwhelming. Some of the programs out there are very overwhelming for a parent who's never been a teacher before. And I never wanted that. And so I, you know, I joke with my little sister that I wrote the program thinking, can she do this? <laughs> Will she understand this? And sometimes I would send her little, like the, you know, the lesson or something. I'd be like, do you understand what's going on here? She's like, yes, I understand. Like, well, that's great. Cause you're not a teacher. And I want to make sure because we're not all teachers out there. And I want to make sure this is, you know, something that all moms and dads can, can take care of for their kids. And I'm really proud of what it ended up being. It's ended up being something that's really helped so many families. And uh, again, I never expected that it would be something that would help during a pandemic, right. but it really has. Here we are. Here we are. And it really has. So speaking of pandemic and working from home and all of that, I know myself included um, and yourself included, a lot of parents trying to both work from home full time and parent full-time. So scheduling, um, I think is becoming one of the biggest tips we're seeing out there, but it can be hard to, you know, put it into practice. What does scheduling, um, look like for you and your family in terms of schooling activities, your own activities? Um, I know you have your union break, which I am a big fan of. Um, so what does that all look like for you guys? So for us, when the pandemic started and everybody came back home, I started looking at our day in 15 minute chunks, because to me, that's how I ran a classroom, right? That's how we're going to run things here at home. And I can always look 15 minutes in the future. That's about all I can look, right? <laughs> but I can look 15 minutes out and I can say for the next 15 minutes, this is how we're going to get through. And so I started setting up little ways that my husband could be working from home, that I could be working from home. And that the kids could be doing activities or doing backyard play or, you know, just doing a, their own independent play while giving us these chunks of time and making it really, really manageable for the kids. And I think the biggest thing for us was just finding a routine so that the kids knew what the expectations were. They knew what was expected. Kids can't understand 9 and 915, 9.30, 9.45. They're not going to understand that. But they can understand that after breakfast, I always get dressed. After I get dressed, I play in my room. After I play in my room, I right. go downstairs. I, I do an activity with my mom downstairs. Then I go outside for 15 minutes because that's what they would have done at school anyways. Right. I come in and I have a snack. And it's those kind of really easy, routined, routine experiences that become so critical for my husband and me to get work done because we can say, okay, you're gonna be working during breakfast and I'll do breakfast. And then we're going to swap and you're going to be the parent downstairs on the computer supervising while they're in the backyard. And we can right. kind of do this dance and do the juggle. But now, gosh, now that it's been nine months, yeah, we're pretty good at this juggle. And we're, the kids are pretty good at knowing what the expectations are. As far as the union break goes, <laughs> that was something that started back when my first was a baby. And I started looking at, you know, this idea of we'll sleep when the baby sleeps or this. And then everybody's like, well, when the baby's napping is when I need to clean the house and it's when I need to do this and do that. And I started thinking, you know what? No, no. <laughs> I said, I if that. my, no. <laughs> no, no. If I was at a nine to five job, if I had left the house, I would have all these little breaks during the day. I'd have my drive into work. I would have bathroom breaks where nobody was watching me. Yeah. It's very difficult. Big one. I would have a, kind of, you know, like a mid-morning coffee break. I'd have lunch by myself. I'd have an afternoon coffee break. I'd, right. I'd have the drive home. 
And so I was saying, I need that time still, even though I'm stuck, you know, not stuck, but even though I'm working from, even though I'm living in our home and I'm right. parenting from here, I need that break time to be me. Right. And so I started coming up with this idea that I'll clean throughout the day in little chunks, just mm-hmm. little five minute chunks here and there. And when it comes time for the kids to go down for their nap time, or at this point in our life, quiet time, which they still go down for, yeah. I'm going to sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing <laughs> except for the things that I want to do. And yeah. it's my union break. I can take that hour, hour and a half, whatever I end up with based on the kids' napping schedules. And I can just take that time to just sit, to recharge and reconnect with my own life sit and scroll Instagram. If that's what I want to do, watch my stories on Netflix, something, (laughs) anything. And as the kids got older and as they could help more with cleaning, I started to realize that it was really actually necessary that I didn't clean when they were napping because I don't want them to believe a cleaning fairy comes to our house and whooshes it all back together magically while they're sleeping. I want them to know the hard work I put into this community. I want them mm-hmm. to see how much goes into our house and how much goes into raising them and keeping things tidy. And I want them to be involved in that. I want them cleaning up with me. I want them a part of wiping down the counters and wiping down the table. And if I magically do it all during nap time, then I really do miss that chance for them to see, hey, house doesn't just clean itself. That's mom working really hard to vacuum downstairs and they start to appreciate it more. And they have the ownership because, well, I wiped the table down, so I should probably not smear my yogurt all over this thing (laughs) because later that lady's going to come along and make me clean this. (laughs) And so this idea became, well, yes, I need my union break, but also as far as cleaning goes and things like that, I think it is a really great thing. If you can let your child be a part of that, in little five minute chunks throughout the day. And then when you sit down for your union break, you're sitting in a calm, quiet, clean enough house. And that is just a really beautiful way to spend an hour in your afternoon. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about quiet time. You mentioned that your kids still do quiet time. Um, So downtime for kids, is this important to you? Like how do we work it in for our kids as well? I think quiet time is so important. When I taught kindergarten, it was uh, 15 years ago, a lot of years ago, a very old person. Um, I still did a rest time, quiet time for my kindergartners. They would come in after lunchtime and they were exhausted. And I would turn on some music, a little Beatles, and they would, you know, yeah. put their little heads down. And there was at least once a week, someone fell asleep. It was adorable. <laughs> but it, it showed me that even in a six-year-old body, they are wiped and exhausted and it's a long day of learning and play and their minds are just go, 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 go. They are never just zoned out or, you know, just, they, they just really are going all the time. So with my kids, after they stopped nap time, I never let on, I never <laughs> let on that there was any other option than still go to your room at one o'clock. I never was like, well, gosh, you don't nap anymore. So I guess we're stuck to, no. <laughs> I said, no, I said, Oh, you, it's your choice now if you yeah. nap or if you play in your room, but you are going to stay in here and I will come get you. I will come get you. you know, when our time is up and as they've gotten older and been more aware of numbers, they can mm-hmm. kind of watch the clock a little more. And, and I'll explain that for my much older kids, yeah. my two, they're way too old kids. 
Um, <laughs> but it became this idea that I still need a break and you still need a break. You right. need a quiet time. You need time away from me safely. I can see you on the monitor. I can hear what you're doing. You need time to spend in your own thought and in your own mind. And if that's hard for your child, work into it. The yeah. first day you do it, do it for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, and work it out until you get to that magical. I really think an hour is appropriate. I do. My son, mm -hmm. you know, my daughter at three, four years old was sitting, you know, playing for an hour and she figured it out. Of course, that came yeah. over time. And that was something right. that we worked up to. We didn't just, I didn't throw a three-year-old in the room and say, see you later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we worked up to that and it became this expectation. And and something that they really enjoy. My kids, they see the clock, they see it hit one now and they know it's my time. And they head to their rooms they happily, somewhat happily. And I still will find my daughter is, a, should have been in kindergarten this year. She's home with me. And I would say three days of the week, I walk into that room and that little girl is asleep on the rug, holding her big bunny next <laughs> to the over. pile of Legos she was working on. <laughs> Because she's still a little kid who gets tired. And yeah. I think that this rest time really helps. What I did learn over the last year, because it was still a little iffy with us on how this rest time was working, especially when they weren't napping at all. And so the system I came up with was at one o'clock, you go into your rooms, mm -hmm. one to two, you're in your rooms playing at two o'clock. You may come out of your room and go downstairs where I can okay. still hear them, but I'm I'm upstairs so I can hear what they're doing. I know they're safe. We're right. good. And I have a rest time bin, a quiet time bin of little activities for them to do, little mazes and whiteboards and etch-a-sketches, mm -hmm. just really little quiet, calm things, right. a couple of little card games. And they can sit for a half hour and do that. And then at 2.30, they know what 2.30 looks like on a clock. They've figured that one out. Yeah. They can turn on the TV and they can have their a half hour of screen time. And so that goes from 2.30 to 3. And so right there, I've gotten myself, for me, I'm working now. So it's yeah. a working two hours where I really have a full two hours of them on a little bit of a schedule where they know exactly what they need to do. And I do need to go down and help from time to time. But for the most part, it's a very peaceful 1 to 3 p.m. at our house. And thank goodness, because I would just lose it without that. Can you talk a little bit more about how we can encourage that independent play? Because I know that is something that some kids are great at it. And right. others, especially for only kids, um, yeah. they, uh, they are in, I, I've played so many games of cars since <sighs> pandemic started that I'm about ready to hide all of the cars in our house. <laughs> so I never have to play them again. Um, how can we encourage that independent play with our kids so we can do something like that quiet time? where they go away for an hour. All by themselves. <laughs> they go away. <laughs> Goodbye. I'm going to watch you over the monitor. Yeah. <laughs> it is a beautiful, it is a beautiful it's system. A dream. <laughs> for me, what I've learned with my own kids, and I have two children that were born knowing how to play. And then I have one that was born knowing he wanted to play on top of me and back inside and maybe reattach the umbilical cord. And that if he's not like gazing into my eyes at all times, then something is massively wrong with his life. And oh, God love him. You know, God love him. But that's him. And for him and me, especially though, and what he has taught me and what he's shown me is that play is a skill. And this is a skill we have to develop in, in our children. Some children are just not going to be natural play by themselves. They're maybe they're very social. They want to be chatting with you all the time. They want that human interaction all the time. And so for us, it became 
a couple of things. First, recognizing that play was a skill and that this was a skill we needed to learn little by little. It's kind of like running a marathon. You don't wake up one morning, put your shoes on and go run 26 miles. You work up right. to it. And we're going to work up to it in five minute increments. And what really helped with my son was setting the parameters on time. Even when he was two years old, I would say things like your job is to be in this room with this toy. And I might even give him the toy because sometimes making that toy decision was the hardest part for him. I'm going to go unload the dishwasher. I will find you when I'm done unloading the dishwasher. And even as a two-year-old, that was an amount of time he understood. He knows how long it takes to unload the dishwasher. He's seen me do it. He knows I'm alive. He knows I'm in the house. He knows where I am. He can hear me. We have all these forms of communication going. Yeah. But he can start practicing that skill. The other thing that I noticed, and I said it a little bit there, was that making toy decisions became a really difficult part for him. And he would look at all the toys in our house and he would get very overwhelmed. And his response to being overwhelmed was, I'm not going to play by myself. Yeah. And so if you're having a child who really is having a hard time finding play inside your house, I would audit your toys and I would try to put some away. Maybe there are just too many out and there's too many choices and too many decisions. And I would pack a few away for now and see what happens if you really limit the amount of choices that child has. I am by no way a toy yeah. minimalist, but in this situation, it can be really beneficial because it could just flat out be overwhelming for a child to be looking at that wall of toys and they have no idea what to do. The other idea is start the play with your child help them say, we're going to do a tea party. You're going to do a tea party mm -hmm. and let's invite the dinosaurs to this tea party. I wonder what would happen and then get them going and start slowly backing away. Don't make eye contact. Don't <laughs> let them, you know, they're like, they're like T-Rexes. They sense movement. Just carefully back out of the room, yes. but help them find these ideas. And, and again, that's where a sensory bin can be started. really helpful. Yeah because they can start to figure out what they want to do on their own and they can kind of have a safe thing to do. Really, it all comes back to this idea. This scholar, Jean Piaget said a you know, hundred years ago, play is the work of childhood. And what I always want to expand on that is say it is, it's also not the work of adulthood. And I think especially with our parenting generation, this kind of idea came out that, well, if I'm not playing with my child all the time, if I'm not with them, if I'm not engaged, then, then I'm not connecting with them. Then I don't love them enough. Then they aren't going to grow. Then our relationship is going to be, is going to be impacted. We're and not Instagram perfect. It's not. Exactly. Working. It's not working. And that's so far from the truth. Play is your child's job and their brain is uniquely wired for this job. Whereas our brain really isn't wired for this anymore. Unfortunately, we, you know, we don't hear the bell anymore. It, it yeah. we grew up. And, but they still do. And they, they, they need these chances to play on their own so much more than they need play, chances to play with us. And that doesn't mean you're disconnected from your child. We're connected with them when our phone is down and we're, you know, listening to them and we can, you know, ask questions about what they're doing. When I play a puzzle with my kids or I play a game with them or I do art with them, those are great right. chances for me to engage with my kids. But when they're doing independent play. When my son is deep in Lego world, when my daughter has her little tiny animals out and is making them talk, she's so much better at that than I am. And if I come in and interrupt that, unfortunately I change the play and I make it more about me on accident. I'm trying my hardest, but I'm just not good at it. She is. 
And if we can recognize that play is no longer our job, but it's the child's job, if we can release that parent guilt, if we can say, when my child is playing alone, my child is doing the most significant learning they're going to do all day, that is the most powerful thing we can do for our child in the entire day, aside from loving them unconditionally. Mm -hmm. If we can give them that time and say, I know what you're doing right now is important, if we can value it, if we can tell them to go play in a way that isn't dismissive. Go, go, just go play. Yeah. We can use tones of voices that honor play. I am so excited that you get to go play right now. Tell me what you're going to choose to play with. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to hear how this goes. I will be downstairs vacuuming while you're doing that. And then I want to come back together and talk about what you did. We can uphold play as though this is the most amazing thing that they get to do in the day and release our parenting guilt around it yeah. that this is not the only way we connect with our kids we connect through meals and conversations right. i think that that is one of the best things we can do right now in in our parenting generation so speaking of toys and all of that it's holiday season oh it is this is coming up hanukkah's coming up all of the gift giving is coming up what are your favorite things to gift around these like purposeful play toys the open-ended toys yeah um i know you have a holiday list too I do. I, you know, when I'm looking at toys for my kids and I'm looking at what I'm gifting them for Christmas, I make sure they fall into different categories. I want each child to have a toy that builds, a toy they can build with, a toy for dramatic play or imaginary play. (laughs) I want to have a toy for empathy. And so that might be a doll, that might be a stuffed animal, that might be, um, that might be like for my daughter, it's little animals. That's what she uses as her little empathy toys. And I, I want to make sure that I have these open-ended toys that will grow with them, that when we put them into our house, I'm not putting them into our house for the next six months. I'm putting them into my house for the next six years. Yeah. And I'm looking at this set of blocks that my son got when he was two years old, Christmas that he was two years old, and he got this set of blocks. I went downstairs this morning, he's seven and a half, and that same set of blocks is set up downstairs, and he's made some sort of cathedral <laughs> thing with the Paw Patrols in it. It's very elaborate. (laughs) But here we are five years later and it's the same set of wooden blocks. And that's the dream for a toy. That is the Toy Story dream for a toy, that it will have this long life. So when you're looking at toys for your kids in the holidays or for birthdays, I think the biggest thing to think about is how long will they use this? Is this toy a fad are they just going to use this for that or a developmental fad? Like, are they just going to use this for the next 18 months? Mm-hmm. And then, and then that's kind of it. Or can they use this for the next, you know, I'm like 18 years. I have neighbors that are 18 still using the wooden blocks when they come over <laughs> to babysit. Yeah. Well, when they used to come over to babysit. <laughs> and so I just think it's so, so, so important that we look long-term with our kids, that we're looking long-term with their toys and making sure that, you know, we're getting the best bang for our buck and, and buying things that are going to just absolutely grow and, and be a help to us. If the toy is going to require you to come sit and play or you to come sit and build, that's not the right toy. We want yeah. the child playing. Right. One of my favorite new things to gift is a sensory bin kit. Oh, I love that. 30 bucks will go so far and get you a lifetime supply of sensory bin supplies. And I think yeah. it's often it's overlooked. Great. It is a great one. One of my friends has did one and like had all of my recipes for different sensory stuff oh, laminated God. on little cards. It was so cute. I mean, she's That's so crafty. Awesome. 
All right. Last question that I want to talk about is okay. your new book that came out. My new favorite parenting book, mainly because of the honesty in it. Uh, Thank you. Actual parenting from their first no to their first day of school and everything in between. So how did this book come about? Tell us a little bit about it. So, you know, the person who published that book um, in the Innovation Press, she's been a blogger friend of mine for years. Actually, she's the one that invented bubble foam all those years ago. She's amazing. And yeah. And she left blogging to end up writing this amazing series of children's books called Zoe and Sassafras. And she's just an amazing author. And years ago I came to her and I said, I think I want to write a book. And she said, I think that's the worst idea ever. And, um, (laughs) mother, small children. No, it was. And she said, do an ebook, write a, she goes, write what you want to write, write it as an ebook, sell it on your website. And that's what I did. And I wrote Playing Preschool and I have it on my website for sale. And I said, great, great advice. Okay, I'll just do this on my own. And I did. And then years later, I get a call from her and she said, um, here's my publishing company and I know what book you're going to write now. And so it's time. <laughs> and I said, okay, because she'd given me such great advice all those years ago, I was going to blindly follow her down any path. And <laughs> and so she, she just kind of said, I, we need a book out there that is a mix of parenting and activities. There are all sorts yeah. of parenting books out in the market. There are all sorts of just kid activity books on the market where you can just find activities. We need a mix. And that's kind of what I do already on my Instagram right. account. So yeah. let's just put that pen to paper. And so I started writing and what I kept thinking as I was writing, it was, I just want an actual parenting book. I want a book about like kids licking a tree and you know, what, what you know, what one of the Sam's little friends said, she goes, I saw where you said that, that one of the kids licked the Dairy Queen railing. And, and I remember that because she was there because it was her and Sam that licked it. And I said, and, and so she's laughing and, and, you know, she's only seven and she knew this is yeah. real life. This is real parenting. I just, I wanted something that was for our generation that wasn't, you know, light and fluffy and, you know, your, your right. child is a beautiful flower. I wanted, and then I just, there are so many books out there that almost put children down and put parenting down. And, and I also didn't want that. I wanted just this really honest approach to parenting that is just what I think of is very normal and very yeah. basic and, and right down the middle of everything. And, and I wanted it to go from my early motherhood experiences right up to sending my son to kindergarten, which is where my education background takes over. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm so proud of it. So I love that it. it has sort of like the advice section and then the practical, like, and then here's how you do it. Like here is an activity to do it. Cause so often those don't overlap. I've right. done some, even with this little baby podcast we've started, there was a great book that we were going through that had tons of great resources for remote learning, but didn't give the how-to on how to actually implement it. So I love that this book does that. Um, I love that your hashtag being two is fine, being three is fine. (laughs) Being Um, 37 in a pandemic is fine. Right. (laughs) And um, like I said earlier, my son goes through this book now as activities, which I think is another really great way to use it in the pandemic. I mean, when he's bored and he wants to do something or I don't want to play cars again, hand him the book and say, find something in here. Let's do that activity. Cause most- and it's so much easier than handing them your phone to scroll Instagram, you know, right. which is so <laughs> random and weird. Here's this physical thing you can actually hold and see the, the kids doing it. And, and I just wanted to write it in such a way that 
you could pick it up and look at it and it isn't some daunting parenting textbook. I never, right. I mean, I can't even count how many of those are sitting around our house that I never even finished reading right. because they were <laughs> so text heavy. Because they're just right. not useful. I was like, they're so text heavy. I'm never going to get through this. I have so many kids around here. I have no time <laughs> for this. I need like really fast Fast, fast quick, to the point with things that you have on hand, which is what you're right. writing in that yes. book. I love it. All right. Thank so you. we will link where you can go buy that book if you're interested in purchasing um, for maybe the parent on your holiday list or maybe a little gift for yourself, a little treat yourself this holiday season. Yes. <laughs> um, it is uh, probably one of my favorite investments so far this pandemic. Um, oh, thank you. One of my friends uh, has told me every time I recommend a book to her that she is not in the business of improving herself during quarantine because she's focusing on getting through it. <laughs> not improving yourself during it. And, um, while this does fall into like a parenting advice book, that is not the book. That's not the, the sort of category it's in. This will, this will help you get through your quarantine. And I love that the two week winter break that's coming up where there's oh, no school, my gosh, and no one back to go visit it. and oh. no places to go and at holiday activities to do. That is a long two, two and a half weeks coming up. And I think that's a great companion to get us through it. Thank you. All right. Last thing I have for you is okay. what is the most important message that you want to get across to parents sort of right now in this phase of life? I think in this phase of life, we so often worry. We worry about what we're doing. We worry about what they're eating, what they're playing, what they're learning. Right. And I think we need to remember that we are enough. And just keep saying that over and over as you eat the leftovers off of their plate because you didn't have time to make yourself lunch. Remember that you are enough and you are doing great things for them. Even in this very truncated, very different time that we're living in where mm. things are so odd and so off. Right. But you are still enough for them and you will be enough for them for their whole lives. You know, yeah. think of how you feel for your parents. You will always be enough for them. And just, just hold your head up high and know that you're doing the absolute best that you could in a situation that is absolutely unprecedented, that nobody has any idea how we're walking this path or going through it. And I do believe that generations from now will look back on ours and say, I can't believe they did that. Yeah. And I think if we can just remember that the choices you're making right now are the best you can for your family, keep holding your head up high and just keep repeating, I am enough. I am enough because you, you really are. I think that is a really great note to end on. So Susie, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Of course. To talk to us. Um, we will be linking a lot of, um, Instagram posts and blog posts that Susie has that reference some of the things that we talked about today in our show notes. And we will also put a link to purchase her book uh, to add it on to your Christmas list. Um, thank you again, Susie. Of course. Oh, it's my honor to be here. And if you're looking for her on Instagram, it is at busy toddler and busytoddler.com for her website. And uh, that's it for today. We will catch you guys all on our next episode. Bye everyone. For more information on the SPARK program, please visit www.ltcillinois.org slash SPARK.